listening to the Northside Christian Church Sermon Podcast. These teachings are recorded at our weekly Sunday morning gatherings in Springfield, Missouri. For more about our church, service times, and how to connect, visit northsidechristianchurch.net. Good morning, Northside. It's an exciting time to be around Northside, as you could tell. All of the stuff is starting up between Rooted. We've got Ignite tonight, which is training for your ministry purposes. Hopefully you're coming if you're involved in one of our ministries there. Um, I want to do something a little bit different this morning to start off. I'm going to ask everybody to stand as we read our text for this morning. Um, You can find it in Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. Colossians 1, 3 through 8. It'll be up here on the screen as well. Just so you know, as we read this, you might think through this. This is one sentence for Paul. It's not one sentence for us because we like punctuation, but Paul didn't really care about punctuation all that much. He just started talking about this church in Colossae that was uh, so on fire for the word, so formed and shaped by the gospel that he just starts writing or had someone start writing for him. And as it goes, it's uh, these verses are all just one thought for him. He's just jumping from one thing to the next. So think of that as he brags about this church from Colossae. It says this, starting in verse three. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It is, it is bearing fruit and growing all over the world just as it has among you since the day you heard it and come to truly appreciate God's grace. You learn this from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has told you about your love in the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you have a seat? What I'd like to get to this morning is to talk about what it looks like the marks of a gospel-formed community. As a matter of fact, we're going to talk later in the message about the DNA of a gospel-formed community, as this church in Colossae was. Um, it's, you know, this, this is something I would, I would love to dig into, but I think the first thing that we have to do is define gospel. Right here in the middle of this text, in the middle of this nice long run-on sentence that any of you would get extra credit if you tried to diagram it, This nice long sentence is this idea of the gospel. All of the things that describe this church that Paul is bragging about come from what he calls the gospel, which has come to you. The word of truth, he says it is. And I think it's important to stop and kind of rewind when we hear words that are churchy. You know, the words that I'm talking about, like redemption and reconciliation. And actually a lot of our sermon titles moving forward in this series are going to be kind of those churchy words. And we're going to dig into like, what do we mean when we say gospel? What does it mean? Because words can mean different things to different people at different times. You know, the other night I realized that my three-year-old daughter has three different words for blankets that lay on her bed. And yeah, there's, there's more than three, but there's three specific blankets that lay on her bed. I was getting ready to put her to bed and she asked for a specific one. And, and the first one is the weighted blanket that she has. It is known as blankalet. Okay. So say that with me, blankalet. Okay. You guys need to know this because it's important. So blankalet is just, there's nothing really special about blankalet. It's just a, a, it's pink, of course. And it's weighted, so it's there. Blanket is, it's just a regular weighted blanket. But if you call it blanket, you're not going to bed that night, okay? Because if she asks for blankalette and you give her blanket, see, that's a different, that's a different cover. 
On her bed is a blanket that we bought her when we, when we bought her bed. We thought it would look nice and we'd make her bed up, that sort of stuff. It stays there because she doesn't use it. It's just a blanket. So just a blanket, run of the mill, nothing special about that. But the other night, I was putting her into bed and she was insistent that she needed a different cover. I, I was scared to name it because I wasn't sure what she had come up with. Um, and what, what she had come up with was she was looking for blankalee, Okay. And we learned that there is a difference between a blanket, a blankalet, and a blankalee, okay? And, and, and you have to get these right, okay? If, you have, if you've ever had a three-year-old in your house, you know that these are important things to know, right? You're not winning this argument. And even though I sat down and just tried to logically explain to her that they all do the same thing, I tried to tell her that we could just use one word as a, a blanket statement to cover them all. She did not think that was funny. And... And she just was like, no, Blankalee has to be here. She was not having it. When we just throw words around like gospel and reconciliation and redemption and sin, when we say those words, we need to make sure that we know what we're talking about. It's definitely, it's, we, when we define gospel, it's probably a pretty good idea to know the words that we're using. Paul clarifies to the Galatians because they were using the word gospel and were a little bit confused. He says this in the, in the opening of that verse, which sounds a little bit different than the way he praised the Colossians. He says, frankly, I'm stunned. I can't believe that you've abandoned God so quickly and have fallen for a different gospel. Actually, there's only one true gospel. And you, because of divisive prodding by others, are accepting a distorted version, which is not the gospel at all. Paul's urging this early church, you got to get your vocab right, because you keep calling this, it's like the princess bride. You keep using that word, but I don't think it means what you think it means, right? No, we're not talking about three different blankets here. We're talking about one gospel. And, and early on, it, the meaning of that word has already started to leak in the early church. There were churches that said, well, maybe this is the gospel. You see, for the Galatians, there were the false teachers known as the Judaizers, which is kind of a cool name. Not cool people, though. They were telling these new Christians that the true gospel actually included, yeah, you could follow Jesus, but you also needed to include the Jewish law. And most notably, what was included in that was circumcision, which, if the guys will hear me out, is not good news, right? That's not a church growth strategy that anybody continued using, right? The Judaizers said, you've got to add on all these things. By the way, there's a catch. It's painful. And, and so you're not saying anybody, nobody's coming to, to church because they know that that's the way, that's not good news. So the issues were similar in Colossae. Colossae, they were, they were shaped by this gospel and Paul is bragging on them, but it wasn't the gospel of the Judaizers. They were there. They had made it to Colossae. And he, had, he, had, uh, he said, that's actually no gospel at all. But as he's bragging on them, it, it, what kind of gospel is he talking about? What is this good news that he's so uh, happy that the Colossi church has, has grabbed a hold of and has become formed by? Well, if it wasn't from the east in Jerusalem, maybe it came from the west. The farther away from Jerusalem that you went to the west, you would get closer and closer to Rome. And the influence was growing in the Roman Empire. And so even before the word gospel, this, this Greek word euangelion, that meant good news, even before it came synonymous with followers of Jesus, even before it became known as those first four books in our New Testament. Uh, that word was actually a kind of a general word for good news. Good news could come from Rome. Like the emperor could send news from Rome, that, uh, that th and that's what they would call it, the euangelion, the good news of the kingdom. 
Michael DeFazio shares an image in his book that was an inscription that was actually found on stone in 9 BC. I got a picture of it here. So if you want to, we'll all read it aloud together. We bring up that, uh, that, that tablet there. And now, there it is. All right, so let's all read together as we... First off, it's in Greek, and second off, it's not a very good picture. So I put all of what was on that tablet, not actually all, this is one little section of it. Here's how they describe uh, the birth of Caesar Augustus. Here's how it says, since providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set things in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior, both for us and our descendants. That, that, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, appearance excelled even our anticipations, surpassing all previous benefactors and not even leaving to posterity the, any hope of surpassing what he has done. And since the birth of the God Augustus was the beginning of the good news for the world that came by reason of him. We can't really pick on Paul for his run-on sentences and then read what Augustus had sent across the whole Roman Empire, right? It's pretty wordy, but here's what they're saying. The good news of Augustus, the good news, the gospel has come to Rome. Finally, a savior is born that can, that can end all wars, that can bring peace to the entire Roman Empire, to the entire world. And it's so good that they called him the God Augustus. And I started reading this and I was like, well, that sounds a whole lot like what they, what they said about Jesus, right? That sounds a whole lot like what Isaiah would write about Jesus, that he would come to, uh, you know, the government would be upon his shoulders and we would call him King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I was like, man, this is written. They found this and dated it to 9 BC. This is before Jesus even shows up. And this is how emperors were revealed, revered in Rome. And I was just assuming that it was written when he was born. But then I started doing math, which is hard for me. So I dug into Wikipedia and saw that when this was written, 9 BC, uh, Caesar Augustus, you remember in, um, you know, in Luke chapter two, when Caesar Augustus issued the decree that all would go to their hometown and, uh, you know, the, the, the Linus story, right? The, the, the Jesus story. That's how Mary and Joseph end up in Bethlehem to have Jesus. When this decree was written, 9 BC, Augustus was over 50 years old. So this is, this is not some birth announcement saying the king has come, he's been born. This is like a lifetime achievement award. And there's a whole lot of revisionist history going on here. Now, now Augustus actually was a really great emperor for Rome. He accomplished many things. He, he, he did a lot of the things somewhat that this said, but, but they, I mean, they gave him nicknames like a son of one of the gods, and in the same inscription, actually later on in that inscription, it says that they actually wanted to, to morph and change the entire calendar so that the first year of the calendar, year one, would be the year that Caesar Augustus was born. Does that, I mean, does that sound familiar at all? Pretty interesting how they're borrowing the language to, to, to create their gospel. You see, this was the environment that the Colossi church found itself in, caught in the crosswinds between two false gospels each flaunting themselves as good news. The Judaizers from the East in Jerusalem and Rome from the West. To the Judaizers, the gospel meant that Jesus plus more, Jesus plus more laws to follow, which was not good news at all. And to the Romans from the West and to the Greeks, the gospel was, was a ruler that would conquer all of our enemies and would end all war and bring peace to everyone. But Paul and the Colossians knew that that was not the true gospel. 
that the good news was not Jesus plus something else. Paul and the Colossians knew that that the true gospel, the good news, was not some form of nationalism to the point where we can't distinguish our earthly authorities from divine power. What is this word, the the word of truth that that, that Paul keeps talking about? What is the gospel? What do we mean when we say gospel? I was talking to our middle school minister this week, Garrett Hawley, and we started talking about, like, how, how do we know what we're talking about when we say gospel? People, people just spread, when people go to spread the gospel, we just kind of say, that's, that's a good thing, right? You're spreading the good news. And he talked a lot about his, his middle school students. When, when you talk about words like the gospel, many of them can tell you that when you say, what does gospel mean? They'll say it means good news. Some of them might even be able to tell you the Greek word, euangelion, that it actually means. It's actually closely related to the same word as evangelism. They could go into all that. And you ask them the next question. It's like, well, what is the good news? And they get the answer that a lot of us would probably give. Jesus, right? That's where we go to. Jesus is the good news. We're like, well, who is Jesus? Well, he was God. Well, wait, Jesus was God? If Jesus was God, so what is, what is this good news? What is the good news that Jesus brings? Did he have like a, a news article that he released? Did he have a paper or something like that? What is the good news? And so one of the things that they teach in the middle is called the gospel motto. And you might have seen it on the back of some of their middle shirts. It's the gospel motto. And this is the graphic I brought up here for it. Um, The gospel motto is just simply this. It's a short, memorable, detailed explanation to answer the question, what is the good news? If somebody asked you that, what is the good news? And I can see it. I can see it. I caught him over here doing the motions. And he taught me the motions, but I immediately forgot him. So um, I was like too much in my brain. I was like, it's going to be enough for me to get this out of my mouth, let alone try to do motions with it. So we'll leave the motions to Wayne and to the middle schoolers. but, But this is the gospel. Here it is. Jesus died in my place for my sins and rose again to bring new life with God. And so let's break that down. What, is, what does that mean? If we're going we're gonna to define the gospel, what is, what is that? If that is the gospel, here's the first step, Jesus. Not Caesar, not Moses, not Biden, not Trump, not whoever you're putting your hope in at this season of your life, not your paycheck, not your relationship, none of that. Jesus, the way, the truth, the life. And that seems so simple given that we sit in a building that bears his name. The baptisms that we saw today were all in the name of the Father, the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Every prayer that we lift up today will be postmarked with Jesus' name on it, sent to heaven. The gospel starts with Jesus, and that can't be understated. That's why it's the top line. John chapter 14, Jesus gives what I call the most inclusive, exclusive invitation. He says, Anyone can come to the Father but it's got to be through me. It's got to, it's an exclusive invitation through him. He invites everyone, but he tells there's only one way to the father, the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says that. I heard a story of a college student who was visiting local churches. He came to school here in Springfield and decided he would hop around for a little bit. And he sat in one local church, was preaching on this very text, John chapter 14, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the preacher of this particular church paused and he said, now what Jesus meant to say there, which is a very dangerous thing, good time to stand up and walk out. What Jesus meant to say there was that love is the way and the truth and the life. You see, we have this tendency to let, uh, to let love and what we think of love define what Jesus and God should be as opposed to God is love, letting God define what love should be. 
This college student felt pretty uneasy sitting in there, as, as he should have. See, Jesus is what makes the gospel good. If you remove Jesus, there is no gospel. Commentator Warren Wearsby said it this way. He said, the gospel message does not center in a philosophy or a doctrine or a religious system. It centers in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's the top line. It's, it, it, he is the Son of God, not just by nickname as Augustus had Several verses down in Colossians, Paul will call Jesus the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, top line stuff. Hebrews calls him the author and perfecter of our faith, who needs nothing added to him or nothing subtracted from him. There is no good news. There is no gospel without Jesus. Line number two, he died in my place. Caesar Augustus wasn't dying in anyone's place. He wasn't about to give up his seat on the throne, yet we read in Philippians chapter 2 this beautiful ancient hymn of the early church that they would sing, much like the songs that we sing here today, that Jesus made himself nothing, being the form of a servant, obedient to the Father, even unto death, knowing that we could not pay the price that we owed for our sins, that the wages of the sin that we had brought upon ourselves was death. He became a ransom for us, and he died in my place. Why? For my sins. For my sins. So that, so that all the sins that we've wrapped ourselves up in. This is Wayne preached last, year, last week. The, uh, the, the identities that we find ourselves entangled with. The things that we identify as opposed to just Christ. He took it to the cross. And just as the criminal Barabbas was released and the innocent Jesus was murdered. We are released and set free from the bondage of our sin. It wasn't enough for him to just pay the debt of our sin, though. He could have taken away the debt and then said, good luck, try again. Don't get in so much debt this time. No, he rose again. And he rose again. Jesus flipped the tables on guilt and shame so that we don't live in a world of Judaizers where we have to live in fear. We don't live in a world... We don't live in a, in a system where we need to put our hope in somebody who thinks that they're God. Second Timothy chapter one says, and through his resurrection, he has wiped out death and brought to life and immortality by the way of this good news. Same word there for the gospel. He defeated death itself. He did enough but not just for this life. You see, a lot of times we think he defeated death, he defeated sin, and that's great. Now we get to just like wait till later. We just ride a a holy cloud till we get to heaven, then everything will be better. No, to bring new life is the next line in the gospel motto. Jesus called it abundant life, life to the full, life now abundantly. A life full of peace, not a life at the end of a Roman sword or at the end of a, a police battalion. It, not, not peace because my army is bigger than yours, but a true peace. New life that Jesus brings is, is life with a renewed purpose. You're no longer your own. Uh, uh, to share this gospel, unashamed, this good news with people, and, and, and to not care what those people think because of how it has changed your life. This now has become your death to life story. Paul describes it in Galatians 2.20 as being crucified with Christ. He says, I no longer live this life. Whatever, whatever I was chasing before, I'm no longer living that because I live by faith in the son of God who gave himself for me and who loves me. We're not waiting until heaven for all the good stuff. New life starts now. New life starts when God, the Holy Spirit comes and fills you. Not a God that is distant, but a God that is with you.
is with you. You're not alone in your battles. You're not alone in your struggles. You're not alone. The Holy Spirit abides within you when you receive this gospel. You're not asked to just wait until you've resurrected for everything to be better and to have his presence. You're not throwing prayers or songs up to the ceiling, hoping that it might get through. But you're praying to a God who cares and loves you and is with you. Sky Jatani says in his book, With, if we are with God, then our eternal life begins now and will continue forever. We're not waiting for something to happen later. It's abundant life now. God is with us. With God. The father who watches his children run from one failed solution to the other. The father who looks and watches us put our faith and our identity and our hope and our trust in everything besides him. The father who watches us spoil the inheritance as the, as the son did. But he's also the father who stands on the porch night and day watching for his children to come back home. The Father who is holy and just and kind and loving. The Father who defines those words, not those words that define him. Jesus died in my place for my sins and rose again to bring new life with God. That is the gospel. It seems so simple. It seems so concise. And this is what shaped the church in Colossae. It wasn't from the east where the Judaizers said Jesus plus. It wasn't from the west where they worshipped you know, the Roman emperor Augustus as a God, it was this gospel. This is what shaped that church. This is what should shape us. And so I want to imagine for a second that Paul wrote a letter to the American church. I've seen some calls for this over, you know, over Twitter and stuff. And we're like, what if Paul wrote a letter to the American church? And everybody has their own idea of what that might look like. But if we look at the church in Colossae, what, what is it? What is his thing say? And then we look at the church in Galatia, and look at what he wrote to them, what kind of letter would Paul write to us? Would he be appreciative? Would he be bragging about us on how we have truly appreciated the grace of God as he does with the Colossians? Or would it be more like a Galatian letter where we've been distracted and hijacked the gospel for our own agendas, or we've been hoodwinked in some way? Uh, Have we added more rules and made it more of a heavy burden to accept the gospel? Do we say things like, Well, there's no way you could have voted like this and believed this. Do we say things like, well, there's there's no way that you could struggle with this and identify as a Christian? Are we making more barriers? Are we making more roadblocks? Are we making it harder for people to accept this simple gospel than it truly is? So let's jump back to Colossians chapter 1. If we want to be a gospel-formed community in this building and in our, our, our groups and in our homes... If we want to take this gospel to the boardrooms and the classrooms and the break rooms, we need to know, we not only need to know what it is, we need to know what it produces. We need to know how to see it when we see it. Now identify, oh, that's the gospel. The gospel has shaped that. And I think you'll, I think you'll recognize it. You've seen people like this. And so as we go back to Colossians 1, this church, this gospel formed community, what did it look like? When we look back to the text, I think Paul mentions three distinct things in verse 4 that, that we could call the DNA of a gospel-formed church. The DNA of a gospel-formed community. And they are pretty simple ones. They're more of those kind of throw-it-out church, you know, Christianese type of words. Faith, love, hope. Some of you might have those like vinyl things put over your, uh, you know, like your, your fireplace where it's like faith, hope, and love or live, laugh, and love or something like that. Like that kind of what that feels like, right? Thanks, Paul. 
Faith, hope, and love. Great. Okay, we get it. Like, that seems very churchy. That's very, you know, I'll put that on my coffee mug and remember, I got to have faith, got to have hope, got to have love. Well, let's look into those just a little bit. As he says in verse 4, he says, For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. He mentions those three strands. I'm going I'm to call them the DNA of the Colossian church. Let's look at faith first. The first thing he mentions is their faith in Christ Jesus. Their faith in Christ Jesus. How awesome would it be if when someone started talking about you, it's the first thing that they mentioned. And even if it was like kind of annoying things, like, yeah, they're so like into Jesus. It's like kind of nauseating, right? And it'll offend people. They're like, man, it's like every conversation they try to talk about Jesus. It was like, can we just have lunch, bro? Like, you got Jesus, Jesus, this. Think about that. Most, most people know you for something. You know, you have, you have things. We talked about some of these last week with our identities that we put our, our faith in. Most people know me for things like my height and the proportion of like how skinny I am to how tall I am and how funny that looks. That's fine. Some people know me for like what car I drive or the teams that I root for or yell at, whatever. People know these things about me. But what are you known for? What are the things that people know you for? You know, I've got one of those last names that keeps me from getting um, nicknames. <laughs> so people just call me Tiger. So a lot of people know me as Tiger. As I, as I grew up, I was Tiger's little brother. Okay? That's, that was my identity in high school. As I went to college, nobody knew my brother when I got to college. So I became Tiger again. But they used my first name. They used Alan a lot. And then, and then I, I moved off to uh, you know, work at Christian Campus House, a ministry that we're talking about supporting today. And everybody there called me Tiger. Dave, Dave Embry, the longtime director of Christian Campus House, would call me El Tigre, which is a cool nickname. I like that, right? I think that means the tiger. I'm not sure. I have to look it up. But uh, El Tigre, like I, I got the, the people know me because of my name. They're like, you know Alan Tiger. They're like, Tiger, yeah, we know the, we know the tiger. We know El Tigre. Um, and whatever that comes with. But imagine the first thing that came to people's minds when you came up in a conversation wasn't how tall you were or how you spell your last name wrong or any of those sort of things. It was how faithful you were to Jesus. I'm sure if you thought about it in this room, I'm sure you could think of somebody like that. I pray that it's you, but I'm sure you know someone. You're like, that that person, that's the one. The Colossae church, they knew someone like that. His name was Epaphras. He's mentioned a little bit farther down in our text this morning. Epaphras was a disciple of Paul. He was likely, he was likely baptized and came to faith in Christ while Paul was in Ephesus years earlier. There's only one other mention of him outside of the book of Colossians. There's only one other mention, and, and Paul thinks very highly of him. The things that Paul says when he talks about Epaphras in this book and one other time are, is a pretty raving review. Five stars on Google. Epaphras is a dude, right? He's a disciple maker. Paul calls him things such as a faithful minister of Christ, a servant of Christ Jesus, a hard-working man, always wrestling in prayer. Epaphras was a disciple maker. He wasn't a consumer. He didn't go and hear the gospel with Paul and then go, Paul, I'm, I'm hitching my wagon to whatever you're doing. Wherever you're going, Paul, I'm going with you. No, it's told that, that Epaphras immediately went back home. He was from Colossae. And he shared the good news. He shared this gospel of Jesus coming and dying and, 
taking care of sin for good and raising from the dead. He shared this gospel with Colossae and started this church. As a matter of fact, it's, it's known that he probably had his hand in, in planting at least three, probably five churches in that area, in that vicinity. And was kind of the head of all of those churches. But we don't hear a whole lot about him because he was busy. And here we are a couple of thousand years later talking about a city that no longer exists. But there was a church there was a church that Paul had said was bearing fruit all over the world. The second strand, the second strand of the, this DNA of a, of a gospel filled community is the love for others, the love for others. Paul uses in there when he says, we've heard of your love for the saints. That word that he uses for love. There is that special Greek word agape which is used in very specific situations in the scripture. It's not used flippantly like we would say, you know, like I love hot dogs, okay? Like it's not that kind of love. I don't know, maybe for some of you, it is that kind of love. I watched the, you know, I watched the hot dog eating contest. I think that might be agape for that guy. But, uh, but, but agape love, this special use that Paul says that you have this, this, this not brotherly love, not conditional love. This is, this is this unconditional love that only comes from God. Their faith was not just a, a slogan or a creed. It showed itself in real love, real world love. Not because they owed you something, not, not conditional or brotherly, but real agape love. This is the kind of community that says things like, how can we help? And they actually mean it. It's not just condolences. Let us know if we can help you in any way. And they actually do mean, and sometimes they force their way in and say, I'm going to help. Now, this is the kind of community that overflows with hospitality. I had a college minister friend of mine told me that one of the first signs that you can see that the gospel is forming a person is that they start to let go and loosen their grip on the things that the world holds tightly. So think about those things. What are they in our world? Our, our money, our, our homes, our jobs, the things that we hold on to tightly, the things that we would not let anybody come into our life and mess up, our relationships. We're not going to let anybody come mess those things up. We love our, our kids so much. We're going to hold them so tightly. We're going to helicopter parent them. We're not going to let them have any bad influences. We're not going to let them see any of that sort of stuff. But when the gospel comes and shapes you, you start to loosen your grip on some of those things. Not to, not to be flippant, not to be, not to be uh, you know, like a, a bad parent or anything like that. But as the gospel comes and you start to loosen your grip, you see, you see people start to open up their homes to people who need a place to stay, loaning out their cars to someone who needs a ride, helping those in financial crisis without expecting a return. This looks a whole lot like the church we see in Acts chapter 2 when, Paul, when, when it's described. As Luke writes the book of Acts, he says, I'm seeing this community and it's, it's just formed by these people who just keep giving stuff away. Like when the Lord has blessed them and they have excess, they give the excess away. Some of them are selling extra fields that they have. Some of them are selling their properties and possessions. Nobody is in need so that they can help. A gospel-formed community is formed by love for others. As I was writing this, finishing up writing this sermon on Friday, I'm sitting in my office getting to you know, see how incredibly hot it was outside. When I pulled in on Friday morning, I made sure to park my car up under the awning in entrance two. I know a lot of you would like to try to do that. Um, please don't try that on a Sunday morning, but it was shaded. And I was like, it's gonna be hot today. I'm gonna pull up under there. And as I took my lunch break, I walked out into this main lobby and I saw what looked like a brick laying on my car. 
And I was like, I know we're not supposed to park there, but like Wayne didn't have to throw a brick. He was just, that's his parking spot. So, um, and so I was like, there's a, there's a brick on my car. Like there's like a legitimate brick on my car. It's like, what is going I hadn't noticed anybody coming through. So I walk out and I'm taking pictures the whole time, you know, for the insurance and evidence purposes or whatever. And as I get to, to, to my car on the hood of my car is laying this and it, it is a brick of something. I noticed it wasn't thrown there. It was placed there. And, and in this, in this brick, you can tell that it is, it is filled with change. Some kind of, some kind of money. It's like a lot of quarters, nickels, dimes. It's filled with change. And I was like, it's like working on Friday finally paid off, right? <laughs> I should come in every Friday and see what, you know, the, the brick fairy drops me. All right. So, so I go out and I, I pick this up. And as I pick it up, this tag falls off. And all it says on this tag, there's no name. There's just a smiley face as a signature, but all this tag says is for our water project. And some of you might remember from last week, or maybe you got the email that some of our neighbors just up to the north here a few weeks back had their, had their well run dry. And they didn't know it was happening and they need, it needed a lot of maintenance. It needs to be redug, and they've been without water for weeks now. And this, from a, from a family in our church, we learned about this and learned how we could help. We put, out, we put out the email, and I think Wayne mentioned it last week. And as we started talking about it, and I see this on Friday, I asked Helen this morning, I was like, how, how generous have we been? How, have people been given to this? I mean, is this? I mean, this is amazing. This is a gift of love. And this looks like this came out of, like, everything you could scratch up. And I asked Helen this morning for a report. Over $13,000 has been given to that project to dig a well for our neighbors. That's love. That's a, that's a Acts chapter two church church. That makes me proud to say that Northside is my home. That's true love, love for others, not expecting a return. Whoever did this had stuffed this paper full of change. And I don't know who you are. And I know you don't want anybody to know who you are, but this is love. Imagine the church in Colossae was a lot like this. They heard of a need and they would help. They heard, of a, they heard of something that they could do and they did it. The gospel is, is, is synonymous with love for others, generosity. Some of the key fruits of the gospel are generosity and love that flows without expecting return. Finally, the third strand of a gospel-formed community, he mentions the hope of heaven. The hope of heaven. The gospel brings something that no other news from the East or from the West or from Fox or from CNN, no other news can bring you this hope. It didn't make the Colossians indifferent to the things that were happening. It's like, oh, I got a ticket to heaven. They don't need to worry about anything else. You can tell they're already, they're loving their neighbors, but it did help them see things through an eternal perspective. They held, they held the same views as their spiritual grandpa, Paul, when he said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. They lived it and they meant it. As I was studying, I came across some history that really made these words even more powerful. You see, Colossae was, Colossians was likely written somewhere between AD 60 and AD 62. So 60, 62, somewhere around in there. We're talking after Jesus was born. But about 50 years before that, in AD 17... Colossae and the surrounding towns had been completely destroyed by a massive earthquake. It's historically recorded. You can go find that anywhere. But I found it on Wikipedia, so I trusted it. Right? I, I back-checked it in the encyclopedia. Right? 
50 years is a long time. 50 years is a long time. But as I was studying, you've got to believe that there, there's no doubt that there are some people in Colossae, there are some people in that church that remember this earthquake. I've never been a part of an earthquake. I've never been a part of, of something, but I can only imagine. I know some of our brothers and sisters in, uh, in California just, just a couple of weeks ago felt the earthquake. I've never been a part of that, but I can imagine, especially think about living in an ancient world without news or modern technology, not knowing what had just happened. It would have had to have felt like the world was coming to an end. The ground is shaking. They've read about this in prophecies, right? It's the end. And we read that the city is rebuilt, but it never really reached its original prominence. I mean, it was a, it was a, a big time commerce section. And then Rome came through and built some bigger highways through other towns like Laodicea and Hierapolis and places like that. And Colossae kind of got just like left behind, you know, they built the interstate and it kind of just got left. And so in that rebuild was a church. In that rebuild is this church, a church filled with people who put their faith in Jesus Christ alone, who loved one another, knowing that at any time, as their parents could tell them stories of, the ground could begin to shake and this would all disappear. There's something about having a hope of heaven. They had this hope. They had this hope that amidst being under Roman rule and emperors who thought that they were God, they had this hope that among the false teachers who came from Jerusalem, They tried to hijack the gospel that they had built their church on. They had hope in the day-to-day struggles of the human experience. They knew that there was something better coming. They could see their struggles now through an eternal perspective. And and here we are. It seems, I, I actually read on, and about the exact same time that Paul is believed to have wrote and sent this letter, another massive earthquake hits Colossae. The town never recovers really never to be seen in the history again. I think villages popped up here and there and became like an immigrant village for a while, but, but on the map now is completely gone. The city would not recover. There would likely be many in that church who found on that day as the ground shook once again, the reveal, the hope of heaven was revealed to them that day. And yet here we are, thousands of years later in a, in a church, reading about a church, that's been in a city completely wiped off the map twice. Out of the ashes of a community comes this, this church that, is, that has left its mark on history through poverty and natural disasters, hunger, war, corruption. They lived with the scars of humanity, yet their hope was in something bigger. The gospel-formed community has its faith in Jesus, has its love for others, And maybe most importantly to hold all of that together is the hope of heaven, of greater things to come. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project describes the enduring power of the gospel like this. when he says something happens when people tell the story of Jesus and start living like he really is the king of the world. When you truly believe that is the gospel. The gospel that doesn't come from the east or from the west or from whatever pops on your newsfeed tomorrow. The gospel is that Jesus died in your place for your sins and rose again to bring new life with God. He really is the king. Not just by nickname, but by his nature. He is. And this morning, I want you to know that if you're in this place, whether you've heard the word gospel a thousand times or it's the first time you've ever heard it, 
Whatever you think of that term, whatever you think of that word, know that the true gospel is the hope that you're looking for today. Jesus is that hope that you're searching for. It's not in your next paycheck. It's not in your next relationship. It's not in your next high. It's not in your next fix. It's not in next Sunday when you come in here. It's in Jesus and Christ alone. And I pray this morning that you don't walk out of these doors without asking somebody to share the gospel with you. This morning, as we continue, I would love to talk to anyone in here who would like to talk more about this gospel. I promise you that's the only agenda, just the gospel of Jesus Christ, what he's done for me, and what he's done for hundreds of others around this room. We know, I know our prayer team will be down the sides of our worship center. If you want to step out and pray with them, I'll be in this room we call Decision Point just off to your right as we stand and sing. Would you stand as, as, we, as we kind of wrap this sermon up? Lord, I, I just want us to know it's not that difficult. <laughs> to be formed by the gospel means to have faith in Christ Jesus. It means to have, it means to have love for one another and, and to be having this hope of heaven. It's not that complicated. It's not Jesus plus this. It's not the emperor of Rome or whatever the emperor of your heart is. It's, it's really, truly start living like Jesus is the king of the world. I'd love to talk to you about what that means, what your next steps in faith could be. Church, let's pray together. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus, that even though he had every right to sit on that throne and to govern the world, and all of its inhabitants and everything that lives and breathes and moves on this earth. He had every right to stay there and command it. He chose to come down. He chose to come to us. He chose to come and give us new life with you. God, I pray that this, that this gospel doesn't get hijacked by those who want to add to it. I pray that it doesn't get It doesn't get reworked by those who want to use its power for their own gain. But God, I pray that the gospel, unfiltered, unalterated, that your son Jesus came to die in my place for my sins so that I could have new life with you. Lord, I pray for someone in this room that needs that hope this morning. Give them the courage to say something. Give them the courage to to reach out to you, to lift that prayer to heaven and know that it will get through. God, we love you. And we thank you for this gospel-formed community. May we be so protective of the things that form us as a community. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us this morning, Northside. Before you go, make sure you check in and let us know you were here. Text the word CHECK to 417-233-1200. If you want to respond to today's service, you can do that online through Decision Point. If you want to know more about baptism or becoming a member, you can request more info at northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision. This is also the place to find out about our life groups, find out what sort of service opportunities there are, or if you just need to get in touch with a minister. And if you're online, you probably use social media too. Make sure you're following along with Northside on our Facebook page, Instagram account, YouTube channel, or Twitter. We are glad that you chose to join us this morning. As we head out for the week, let's make sure we take the love of God with us. Take good care of each other, Northside.